This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You must remember A kiss is just a kiss A child just a kiss Welcome to another season of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Over the course of the past six years, we've told stories spanning the whole of the 20th century, from the first stars of the silent era all the way through the classical Hollywood era, the new Hollywood, and into the 80s and 90s. Today, we begin a new season which will encompass most of those eras. But we will begin in the early 21st century. On August 12th, 2011, The Hollywood Reporter ran a several-page spread memorializing Polly Platt, who had died of ALS at the age of 72 about two weeks earlier. This expanded remembrance included quotes from stars such as Jeff Bridges, William Hurt, and Danny DeVito, Oscar-winning writer-directors Cameron Crowe and James L. Brooks, as well as Polly's ex-husband, Peter Bogdanovich. It was a remarkable and a remarkably large tribute from one of the industry's key trade papers to a woman who is probably best known as the odd woman out in a love triangle between Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepard, the ingenue of Bogdanovich's breakthrough film, The Last Picture Show. Professionally, Polly Platt was most recognized while she was alive as a production designer. Her only Oscar nomination came in 1984 for her work in that capacity on the Best Picture winner of that year, Terms of Endearment. But Polly did a lot more on Terms of Endearment than simply oversee the look of the film. On that movie, and many others, she acted as an uncredited producer, unofficial writer, and de facto talent whisperer. Her success in all of those capacities on terms of endearment would lead to a position as an executive at Brooks's production company, Gracie Films, where she was credited as a producer on broadcast news and was instrumental in developing the careers of J.J. Abrams, Cameron Crowe, and Wes Anderson. She also played a role in the most financially rewarding aspect of James L. Brooks's legacy, the Simpsons. And all of that happened in the third act of Polly's career. In the first act, Polly had been Bogdanovich's closest collaborator. Their marriage ended after Peter fell in love with Sybil, and Polly forced him to choose between his girlfriend and his wife and their two daughters, then infant Sashi and three year old Antonia. 
Though Polly and Peter separated after the last picture show shoot, they continued to work together on two additional films, What's Up, Doc? and Paper Moon, both of which were massive hits. By the time Polly died in 2011, Bogdanovich's life and career, after much tumult, had slowed down. He had only directed one theatrically released feature since the early 1990s. Though Polly had not been part of Peter's work for almost 40 years, her death inspired a referendum on his career and talents, perhaps more than hers. Ryan O'Neill, one of the biggest stars of the 70s, who had appeared in two of the four films Polly and Peter made together and had played a character partially inspired by Bogdanovich in a film loosely based on Polly and Peter's divorce, described Polly in The Hollywood Reporter as, quote, a spectacular woman and as much a director as her husband. It was a terrible loss when she stopped making pictures with Peter. There was an emptiness and a sadness. There was nobody to tell him what wasn't working, and he resented it when told he wasn't as good without her. At Polly's memorial service, organized by her surviving family, O'Neill made similar comments. The difference was, at the memorial, Bogdanovich had been in the audience. It was a public airing out of a narrative that had been floating in the ether for over 30 years. I know Peter hates this because he doesn't think it's so, but Peter's films with Polly were different than Peter's films without Polly. This is Barbara Boyle, a lawyer and producer who ran Roger Corman's company and was friends with Polly for decades. With Polly, they were good. By himself, they weren't. I mean, that, that's an easy one. Look at the grosses, look at the reviews. There are two uh, pretty definite meters, uh, methods of, of uh, evaluation that Hollywood uses. The reviews, which aren't really as important as the, as the revenue, but if the revenue fails and at least you have good reviews, there's some comfort in that. But when you have neither, there's no comfort. Rachel Abramowitz wrote the definitive magazine profile of Polly Platt for Premiere magazine in 1993. I mean, the article in Premiere really sort of crystallized this idea, maybe rightly or wrongly, that, you know, she was a forgotten woman. She'd been incredibly important to all these successes. And now she'd sort of been erased from history. And there's always a mythology about Peter and Polly. And it's sort of one of these unanswerable questions is, and it probably drives drives Peter crazy, is this like when Peter and Polly broke up, Peter's professional fortunes declined and his his movies were never as successful. And so then there's sort of like reverse engineering. Why was that possible? Why did that happen? And then Polly proceeded to work with other people who were very successful. It's sort of why she's kind of totemic for a lot of women. It's sort of like the story of the woman who puts her husband through med school. But it's even more because it's like she puts her husband through med school and she does the operations with him. And then he becomes a doctor and she's like cast aside like she's never done anything. And it's playing out in public with movie stars. MGM's genius producer of the 1930s, Irving Thalberg, once said, Screen credit is only valuable when it's given you. If you're in a position to give yourself credit... You don't need it. Eight years after Platt's death, in a March 2019 interview with Vulture.com, Bogdanovich forcefully disputed the idea that credit for his early accomplishments should be shared with his ex-wife. It's bullshit. She took credit for things she had nothing to do with, he said, naming among those things the discovery of both Sybil Shepard and the Larry McMurtry novel that The Last Picture Show was based on. Bogdanovich added, Yeah, she lied. She did earn a lot of credit, but she didn't direct anything. Bogdanovich's declaration that Polly Platt lied about her contributions to his films defies the picture of his ex-wife painted by many who knew her, who describe her as brutally honest, sometimes to a fault. 
As Rachel Abramowitz puts it, I never found her to be a liar. I mean, I sort of think, like, if you're going to do people and their ex-spouses, I'm sure they're both going to accuse each other of being liars. The thing that my mom always said to me, she just said I was his wife and I was helping him. You know, it wasn't about credit. It was about the movie and it was about making the best movie, you know, with her husband. That's the voice of Sashi Bogdanovich, Peter and Polly's youngest daughter. I think that the really hard part in between my parents was that eventually she did start to claim credit because Peter, my dad, kept denying credit. And and everybody in the business kept heaping things on her, saying she was the woman behind the man. And, you know, over the years I've tried to explain this to my dad. It's, it wasn't her always saying that. It was everyone else saying it. She started to take credit. She started, well, maybe no, she didn't start to take credit. She started to point out what she did, what her contribution was on the film. And then you can take it from there, you know. I mean, there's certain things that people love about those films. And my mom had a huge hand in those things. But people did say that she directed them. And that's what makes my dad really mad. It is true that Polly Platt never officially directed anything. And a lot of people who knew her or who watched her career wondered why. There are a lot of reasons, which we'll talk about throughout this season. But many of the challenges Polly faced later had to do with the generation she was part of. Polly and Peter entered the industry as the studio system as it had existed since the late silent era was dying. And for the first time, the doors were thrown open to let in a new generation of filmmakers many of whom were both writers and directors, who changed the notion of what could constitute a hit Hollywood film and became celebrities in their own right. This group of filmmakers, whose lives and careers have been extensively chronicled in documentaries and books like Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, was almost entirely male. Many of these male auteurs had female romantic partners who also acted as creative collaborators. And in most cases, the contributions of those female collaborators has been overlooked. During their marriage, Polly didn't think dividing credit mattered. She thought she and her husband would work together in perfect collaboration forever, even though there were signs that Hollywood was not a hospitable place for a husband and wife creative team, and that, in the world Peter wanted to move in, there was an expectation and ample opportunity for him to pursue different kinds of women. At some point in the late 60s, Polly and Peter were eating lunch with Howard Hawks, the great director of films like Bringing Up Baby, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Red River— and his date, Sherry Lansing. Lansing was then about 25 and trying to be an actress. This was years before she'd become the first female head of a major studio. She was unknown, but she had the beauty and grace of a movie star. At one point during the meal, Lansing excused herself to go to the ladies' room. As Polly recalled, She stood up, and she was gorgeous. And I was not. Peter and Howard watched her. I remember having Howard on my right and Peter on my left, and their eyes were following her. Once Lansing was out of view and out of earshot, Polly claimed that Hawks leaned across her to say to Polly's husband, Peter, now that is the kind of girl you should be with. Polly thought, It's like I don't exist. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Polly Platt felt invisible then, and she's essentially invisible now. 
despite her key involvement in what are considered to be some of the best movies of the 1970s and 80s, Polly Platt is hardly a household name. At the end of the day, while there's been much discussion of Bogdanovich's movies post-Polly Platt, there's been little consideration of Polly Platt's extremely significant career post-Peter Bogdanovich. Her story has never been told in full. Until now. Over a year ago, Sashi Bogdanovich shared with me an unpublished, unfinished memoir that her mother, Polly Platt, wrote over the course of the last years of her life. She started writing it after she had, like, retired. She definitely wrote it over about a 10 to 15-year period, you know. She definitely put it away the last five years of her life. Um, She really didn't like it. She was like, I don't like it. It's too much gossip. Feels like a Hollywood memoir. I told her, I'm like, I don't think it's gossip. I think it's exactly what you experienced you were there for all everything you're talking about. The memoir crystallizes a certain aspect of the reputation that Polly earned over her time in Hollywood as someone who forcefully spoke her mind, even or especially when no one wanted to hear her unvarnished opinions. She was seen as a truth teller. I think this I is Polly's eldest daughter, Antonia Bogdanovich. After she passed away, you know, a lot of her colleagues, contemporaries, people she worked with were calling me. It was really nice. And Cameron called me on the... Polly had produced Say Anything, Cameron Crowe's directorial debut. And we had this long talk, and I knew that they had had their challenges on Say Anything because he had never directed, and, you know, she was... She was, you know, they, they, I mean, they didn't clash. They got along, but there were some issues, and my mom would always fight for what she believed in. So I wasn't sure how he felt about her 20 years later or whatever. And he goes, you know, I only appreciated your mother later as I got more and more successful because I had so many people stab me in the back. He's like, Polly always stabbed me in the front. And the way he said it in the delivery of it, because Cameron's very funny, I was like, that's so true. And I've used that line. She stabbed me in the front. You, you would, she would never say something behind your back, ever. And I think Americans are used to that kind of secretive, like, gossipy. And she was not like that. So you'd have to have a really tough skin. But you have to have a tough skin in Hollywood anyways, right? Platt, who was 72 when she died, abandoned the memoir before writing about the end of her career. But she did write in detail about the first 55 years of her life, from her birth in 1939 through the beginning of post-production on her last satisfying experience as a film producer on Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. As filmmaker Allison Anders notes, it was a career of remarkable scope and accomplishment. If you think about targets and you think, okay, there was the Roger Corman connection and then on and on down the line, she hit every single potent era of really independent and art house film. You know, if you think about like, you know, Roger Corman and then there's like that Easy Riders, Raging Bulls period that she was part of. And then she went into the full on art films with Pretty Baby. And then she was in the American Independence. It's kind of kind of wild. Now, I don't want to get this way. I wish I didn't have to. But if I'm male producer i mean she wasn't just a producer either she was a writer and you know as we've said production designer and so forth but if if a man had that kind of trajectory we wouldn't even have to think twice you know it would be in our faces every goddamn day and he would have the one award and one accolade after another but with polly i think that if anyone ever thought she was the shadow figure, she was actually the one with agency making shit happen. I've spent the past year fleshing out Polly Platt's unfinished memoir with archival research and interviews with some of the people who knew Polly best and worked with her closely. Over the next 10 weeks, I'm going to tell her story. In telling Polly Platt's story, we'll be able to reframe the Easy Rider's Raging Bulls narrative of the end of the classical Hollywood studio system 
and the reformation of that system as a factory for blockbusters through the lens of a woman who was not only there, but who struggled to have a significant voice within a changing system that was still rigidly sexist and, to a remarkable extent, succeeded. Polly wasn't able to realize all of her big ambitions, and the stories of some of her failures and struggles are more fascinating than most people's wins. Hers is a grand story of a 20th century life, as full of adventure and heartbreak, triumph and tragedy, romance and self-destruction, as that of any of the great men of Hollywood who have been the subjects of doorstop biographies. The difference here is that even if you think you know who Polly Platt was, you don't know the whole story. We'll begin today by going back to the beginning, to Polly's childhood in the 1940s as an army brat in post-World War II Europe, her awakening to art, theater, and film, the devastating gender strictures and sexual repression of the 1950s that shaped her, and the series of incredible events and tragedies, including a secret pregnancy and an accidental death, that put her in the exact right place and right time to meet and fall in love with Peter Bogdanovich. Join us, won't you, for part one of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Polly Platt's early life was defined by war. Her father, Army Colonel John Platt, was stationed at Fort Sheridan in Illinois when his wife Vivian gave birth to both of her children, first John III, called Jack, in 1936, and then, in January 1939, Mary, who would be nicknamed after her father's sister, Polly. Before marriage, Vivian had worked at the Boston investment firm Loomis Sales, and her transition to army base wife and full-time caretaker of two small children wasn't a smooth one. This is Sashi Bogdanovich. I can only go from what my mom told me, and the impression I got was that Vivian was a frustrated woman who had many ambitions and who gave them up to marry a man who she thought would rise very far in the military and give her, you know, a good life and a fulfilling life. And then she had the children and then he never did that. And and my mom really believed she was an alcoholic and depressed, you know, depressed. Revolutionary Road was one of our, our favorite books. <laughs> and we had talked about it because it was, it, you know, it's obviously the extreme, but her mother was pretty extreme. When World War II ended, John Platt got orders to ship off to Germany where he'd serve as a military lawyer in the prosecution of war criminals at Dachau. The colonel traveled overseas first, and six-year-old Polly and her mother and brother would follow months later. Polly remembered jubilant celebrations of the end of the war on the army base where they lived, but once the patriarch decamped without them, the memories turned painful. The drive home after we took my father to where he was shipping off was a nightmare. My mother was driving and we were in the back seat, my older brother Jack next to me. It was nighttime and there were no freeways in those days. The roads were very narrow and the oncoming car lights were blinding my mother. She collapsed as she pulled over to the side of the road. She began to weep uncontrollably and I can remember my fear and my feeling of helplessness mixed with a very strong realization that she was not to be depended on at all. I knew I had to be the strong one. Mother was not going to take care of me. I could see that. As we'll see, much of how Polly would develop as a woman, a mother, and a person trying to navigate Hollywood could be traced back to this moment. From early on, she didn't want to show weakness. She was determined to at least maintain a facade of control, even if, behind the scenes, she was falling apart. 
As her eldest daughter, Antonia, recalls, She didn't feel any love from her mother or her father at all. She didn't feel that they loved her. And I think that really defined her when she was an adult. That summer, as the rest of the Platts waited for the go-ahead to join Colonel John in Germany, they stayed in a rented cottage on Plum Island in Massachusetts, near where Vivian's mother lived. Vivian was 41. Left to raise two children under the age of 10, with no idea when she and they would be allowed to join her husband overseas, Vivian had what Polly would later describe as a nervous breakdown. One horrific incident from that summer became burned in Polly's memory. Mother drove our old Packard car right off a bridge with me sitting next to her in the car. We only landed in the shallow, muddy lowlands below. I can still remember sitting there in just a few feet of water, thinking how stupid my mother was to try to kill us both this way. So dumb, I thought. Polly wrote her memoir when she was an adult, older than her mother had been that summer, and yet sometimes she wrote in the voice of the child she had been, who was unable to empathize with a mother who was clearly being failed by her husband, not to mention the state of psychiatry in the 1940s, and who, in turn, was failing her children. The older Polly did have empathy for her mother, but she was a talented enough writer to be able to recapture the lack of empathy she had felt decades before, unflinchingly putting her reader inside the terrifyingly cold mindset of a terrified child. She was also undoubtedly forever traumatized. She would say, yeah, my mother drove off a bridge trying to to kill herself, and I think she forgot I was in the back seat. She always said, my mother forgot. So that's a weighted sentence, right? Like, she not only tried to kill herself with me in the car, not only that, she forgot I was in the car. Like, I didn't even mean enough to her to think about. Around Christmas of 1945, Vivian finally got the order to join the colonel in Germany. She boarded the boat with her nine-year-old son and six-year-old daughter, and it was a rough passage, much of which Vivian spent in the ship's bar, leaving Polly to her own devices. The Platz's destination was Erlangen, Germany, the home of a university that had produced much of the intellectualization of Nazism, Erlangen had been virtually completely destroyed by bombs at the end of the war. Polly and her family were driven to their new home through piles of rubble. It was, she wrote, a dead and dying place. Over the next few years, Colonel Platt's work would take his family all over Germany and France into regions where the post-war recovery was slow. Polly would frequently say that seeing entire cities in ruins as a child had fired up her imagination for design. Each pile of rubble made her think about designing buildings to fill the space. The threadbare clothes the survivors were left with awakened her to how real people wear who they are and what they've been through on their bodies. There was nothing there except these starving children— and little boys in the wintertime wearing lederhosen, and most of them had lost limbs. There were blue legs, half-legs, sticking out of their lederhosen, and they were pencil-thin children. I imagine that they lived in these bombed-out buildings, you know, this rubble, rubble, rubble. The streets were filled with it. There were no restaurants, there were no stores. There was nothing. The summer of 1947... Eight-year-old Polly contracted polio. When her temperature climbed to 106, Polly's parents rushed her to the Army Hospital in Munich. The only treatment available in 1947 was sulfur shots every hour. A male nurse came in and told me to roll over. He had a syringe with a long, long needle on it. Not me. I was not going to get that shot. Nope, never. I struggled screamed and kicked. The male nurse went away, but he came back with three other male nurses, 
and they forcibly rolled me over and pulled up my nightgown and smacked that shot right into my rear end. I cried and screamed. I lay there vowing to fight again the next time, which came all too soon. Same procedure. Four men and bam, the shot. I fought these shots for weeks, but they always won. I made my first adult decision. I lay there thinking that no matter how furiously I struggled, I got the shot every hour anyway. I decided that it would be smarter to just roll over and take the shot without struggling. It was a momentous decision. Not only was it less painful to get the shot when I wasn't so tense, but all the male nurses loved me for it. I became popular. Later, Polly would reflect. My life got better because I gave in. This is a woman's lesson that should not be learned. I think it's what made me give in with things like Peter. When the real sad stuff would come in my life, I think I would roll over and take the shots. Eventually, Polly recovered, and over the next couple of years, she and her family went back and forth between Europe and the East Coast of America. In Polly's writing about these years, two common themes emerge that would help to define the rest of her life. One was her growing awareness of art direction as a job that somebody had to do in order to give movies and plays a specific look that contributed to the story. While in Massachusetts visiting her grandmother the summer after she recovered from polio, Polly went to a summer stock production of a play by George Bernard Shaw. I didn't understand the play, but I was mesmerized anyway by the lights and the costumes and the grace and beauty of the leading lady. During the act break, my mother went outside for a cigarette, and I wandered away from her toward the back of the barn that was the theater. There, with the great barn door open, the stage lighting poured out into the black night, and the actors and actresses from the play were standing in the glow, smoking and laughing and talking. These were real human beings. They were wearing their beautiful costumes and wearing a lot of makeup, and they were alive. I knew right then that this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of the theater and design the sets and costumes. I had a dream. Not long after that, with the family temporarily living in a Quonset hut at Fort Dix, New Jersey, Vivian sunk into another depression. In Polly's memory, Vivian was always either crying or violently punishing her daughter for often imagined crimes. Polly and Jack sought refuge by taking the bus to the movies. For many years in Europe after the war, there had been no American movies for Polly to see, and when Hollywood productions did make it to where she was living, they were usually Westerns. Now, Polly and Jack could see every Western they could handle for a quarter apiece. If literally seeing behind the curtain of that Summerstock show had gotten Polly excited about the idea of helping to create illusions and tell stories through designing costumes and sets, the movies further fired up her imagination. This would have been 1948, a year that saw the release of a number of masterpiece westerns, including John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre and two John Wayne classics, Howard Hawks's Red River and Fort Apache, directed by John Ford. Polly's future husband, Peter, would later claim that Polly hadn't taken much notice of directors until they met in 1960, except for John Ford. Polly herself disputed this, but there's no question that Ford was one of her favorite directors. It's fun to imagine nine-year-old Polly watching Ford Apache, a bizarre but typically Fordian mashup of slapstick comedy and serious indictment of white masculine hubris, featuring a central performance from 20-year-old Shirley Temple, as a young woman on the frontier who at one point gets to ride alongside her male love interest on an excursion that turns into an adventure. The other thread that runs through Polly's whole life that was becoming evident in the late 1940s was alcoholism. 
In Europe, adults served Polly beer, wine, and even rum from age six on. When they first arrived in Germany, beer was considered safer for a kid to drink than unpasteurized milk. Later, during a period when Vivian was institutionalized, Colonel Platt would pour enough wine for his daughter at dinner every night to allow the now preteen Polly to get a little bit drunk. Nowadays, we have this idea that allowing children to sample alcohol as a way of learning how to consume it responsibly is a very European thing. But in Polly's childhood, it may have had more to do with the genetic and social alcoholism that surrounded her. Both John and Vivian drank to excess, as did virtually everyone they knew. At one point in her memoir, Polly calls alcoholism an army disease. On army bases, there were parties every weekend at a different couple's home. At one party at the Platt house, all of the guests threw their coats on a single bed. Polly lit a candle while playing with her chemistry set and forgot about it. It had set a blaze in the bathroom. By the time the nine-year-old got the attention of her martini-shaking and swilling father, the fire had spread to the coats. No one got hurt, and Polly's lasting memory of the near disaster was of the thrilling chaos as all of the party guests stood shivering in the February night, sans coats, as they watched the firefighters put out the blaze. As Polly wrote... It was comical, and I loved the whole thing, never thinking of the trouble I was going to be in. My parents were too drunk to punish me. Polly and her family finally returned to the U.S. for good in 1953, when John retired from the Army. They settled in suburban Boston, where John became a civil defense contractor, and Vivian went back to Loomis Sales, the firm where she had worked as an investment banker in the 1930s, before marriage and kids. Now, 20 years later, the firm would only hire her back as a researcher for the male executives, a glorified secretary. Later, as we'll see, Polly would come to understand the extent to which thwarted professional ambition, owing to the sexism of the times, played a role in her mother's inability to function. Enrolled as a high school student at Milton Academy, Polly found her niche in the theater department, where she started building sets and designing costumes for class productions of plays like The Crucible. She planned to enter Skidmore College in the fall of 1956 to study art and drama. But first, Vivian decided that Polly should debut to society in Boston. There's a big ball in Boston, where debutantes are formally inducted into debutantehood, our fathers walked us across the room to music, and we bowed before a bevy of matrons of high society. What the whole thing was about, I realized, was showing your daughter off in the biggest possible way as a potential mate for the many boys attending. The bigger and richer the party, the more eligible the girl for a promising marriage. Godless wild radical that I was, and poor to boot. I rebelled at the whole debutante charade and went to a debutante party dressed in shorts and a t-shirt. I got in by wearing a long black velvet coat so no one could see what I was wearing underneath. The matrons were not amused. I went to the bar where there was free booze. It was like a slave auction block, I told myself. Poor mother. She thought I would meet some Harvard lawyer and marry him. Wanting to be rich and pretty was nothing compared to working in the theater. There, it was all about talent and good plays. Polly thought she would be on that road to the serious life she desired, learning how to hone her talent and make great art. But what she discovered was that, for young women in the mid-1950s, college was just the debutante circuit in more casual dress. Instead of choreographed balls they had beer-soaked parties with boys from nearby schools. But the goal was the same, to find some guy who would marry you 
and answer the question of what it was that you were going to do with the rest of your life. These social rituals were less interesting to Polly than her art and drama classes, and she took to hiding in her dorm room, smoking cigarettes, listening to jazz records, and reading Hemingway. She was the most rebellious person at Skidmore College. This is Peggy Steffens, who met Polly in college in 1956 and remained one of her closest friends until Polly's death. She was a loner, but we became very close, and we both hated Skidmore. Polly became obsessed with a local who, in her memoir, she calls Bob McCartney. He was a young man from the area who didn't go to college. He was a dark and brooding man who lived upstairs over his parents' grocery store. He often played male parts in our plays and helped build scenery, my turf. He helped me down off a ladder one night, and I was swept off my feet, having his arms around my tiny waist. He was so much more interesting than the boys from Williams and Dartmouth. He played the horses in the summertime and knew the woman who owned the racetrack. If he wasn't in the drama department, he was at the Saratoga Inn, drinking and reading the paper. I was completely in love with him. Polly had been curious about sex since high school, but she hadn't experimented. Her mother had discussed nothing personal or anatomical with her. Now, with her first real lustful crush, Polly sort of lost touch with reality. She took to climbing out of her dorm room window at night to stand under Bob's window, just to stare. She stopped changing her clothes and would show up to classes without shoes. Eventually, her behavior became so unusual that Skidmore put her on suspension. Vivian drove up to Saratoga Springs to pick her daughter up, and what happened next speaks to why, in the 1950s, sexual desire was liable to drive a young woman mad. Mother had a car, and it was perfect. A blue Ford with a wide, generous front seat. Somehow, I maneuvered my mother into letting me have the car that night, and I went out with Bob McCartney, and we parked and necked like mad in the Ford. It was time to sleep with him. I knew that. But I had my period and was too shy to tell him about the great wad of kotex I had between my legs. I was frightened and yet still willing, although I was a virgin. I went out of the car and took off my kotex and buried it in the forest. I came back to the car and tried to have sex with him, but his penis was too big and it hurt, and I got blood all over my pretty blue dress. It was a disaster. There was no sex for me that night. He drove me to a motel where I put my blue dress in the sink. The water was all bloody, but it was the best I could do. The next morning, my mother came into my room with the bloody dress in her hands. Her face was white and strained. She accused me of having sex with that boy. She was horrified. Needless to say, I was not interested in telling her the truth. She wouldn't believe me anyway. I had never had a conversation with my mother about sex or my period or anything remotely like that. She was a stranger to me. All of this, the confusion, humiliation, and alienation resulting from teenage sexuality in the 1950s, would surface in The Last Picture Show, the first widely seen movie that Polly designed. As we'll discuss in our next episode... Polly had been drawn to adapting the novel the film was based on because she had lived it. Or, at least, she had lived a suburban Boston version of the same emotional conflicts that ran through Larry McMurtry's Texas-set novel. Just when Polly thought her relationship with her mother couldn't get more mortifying, it did. Polly spent that summer working at a drama camp, and... Depressed over her failed and humiliating attempt to lose her virginity, she sought solace in snacks. Always slim, suddenly she had gained quite a bit of weight. When I got home, my mother took one look at the fat me and sent me to Boston to see a doctor. 
The doctor gently explained to me that my mother was afraid I was pregnant. Was I? No, I wasn't. I was still a virgin. After a pelvic exam, he sent me home. I was furious with my mother. I spent the rest of the day in Boston at the public library, fulminating with a combination of shame and rage. I took the train to Hingham and walked home late that night and said nothing to my mother. I didn't put together the bloody dress with pregnancy as my mother had. I can see now why she thought that way, but why she never spoke to me about sex or birth control, I'll never know. Sex was clearly going to be a taboo subject as it had been already. I could have used a little talk about how I could get pregnant. Here, though dryly self-deprecating as she often was, Polly was foreshadowing. Polly lost the weight she had gained that had caused her so much humiliation through a crash diet of coffee and ice cream. Back at Skidmore, she began evaluating what she was doing in the art department. She knew she had talent, but when she looked at the art world, she didn't see a place for a young woman. And she wasn't sure she had the vision you needed to be an artist. But she thought she could draw vision and inspiration from plays— and decided to focus her talents into theatrical set design. The following summer, she worked as an apprentice set designer at a summer stock near Pittsburgh, and that experience convinced Polly to transfer to the Carnegie Institute of Technology, now called Carnegie Mellon, to study stage design. But at her new school, Polly felt discouraged from pursuing a career in set design, She was told the work was too physically demanding for women. Jules Fisher, who would go on to become a world-renowned lighting designer, studied scenic design at Carnegie at the same time Polly was there. She was blonde and beautiful, and I found her very attractive, so we became friends pretty quickly. I always loved her, even though we never had any more involved relationship. Jules told me that he thought he remembered there being women in his set design classes, but he didn't deny that Polly may have been made to feel that she was being excluded because of her gender. Well, it was a different era. I'm not saying in any way that I was more liberal or more intellectual about understanding that. I just don't remember it. But a woman would, but that's a big difference. I'm not a woman. And to a woman, maybe it was absolutely true. I mean, females from the beginning put down. And and I say, I don't see it, I didn't see it then as sexism as much as that's the way it is. My son is going to get that job, not that lady. This matches something Polly said about her experience at Carnegie many years later in an American Film Institute seminar. Nobody really thought of it as discrimination at the time. They really just didn't think a woman could do the work. In this climate, Polly shifted her focus to costume design, and she learned how to cut and sew period costumes while studying architecture on the side. Jules started a film society at Carnegie, and there Polly got her first real education in the great filmmakers of previous generations. I was fascinated with the old films. I'm talking about the Garbo pictures by Clarence Brown and the early John Fords, the early Fritz Langs, you know, Metropolis, and, you know, Murnau, The Silence, Keaton, D.W. Griffith, Chaplin. There's just no film that I didn't see. Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Everything. Everything. In the Carnegie Drama Department, Polly met and fell in love with a playwright named Philip Klein. Having uneventfully lost her virginity that year in Summerstock, Polly embarked on her first serious, requited romance. We began sleeping together in his tiny flat in the basement of a big Pittsburgh house with no heat. We turned on the stove and let the gas heat the room, which I later found out could have killed us because of the carbon monoxide. It slowly dawned on me that I was feeling sick on the way to school from my dorm. I had read enough books to realize that I was most likely pregnant. Thanksgiving break, I made an appointment with the family doctor and he confirmed my suspicion. He thought I was about three months pregnant. What was I to do? 
Abortion was out of the question, it was illegal, and I had read about the back rooms where they used coat hangers to abort babies. Telling my broken-down mother, who wandered around our house in her pajamas and cried all the time, was also impossible. As Polly later explained to her daughter Antonia, she felt she didn't have a real choice. She was terrified. She said my mother was Catholic. I couldn't have sex out of wedlock. She couldn't tell them, and she had to keep it a secret. And I think she was also afraid that they would see, you see how you are, Polly? You've always been a rebel. You've always been trouble. And here's another example. I made a plan. It was November, seven months to go, before my brother's big Catholic wedding in June. I had to be there for the wedding as I was to be a bridesmaid. I lied to my father, convincing him that I was not getting the education I needed at Carnegie Tech, and that I was going to get a job building and designing sets for a traveling children's theater group I knew of. He would no longer have to pay tuition, but I just needed $100 a month to augment my meager income. He readily agreed and promised the monthly check. I figured if I could find a room somewhere for free, that would be enough money for me to live on. Polly found a couple, seniors at her college, who had a two-bedroom apartment on the top of a steep hill. They agreed to let her live there in secret until she gave birth. The scheme involved one more major lie. I never told Philip about the baby. I told him I was moving to New York to be with two girlfriends from Skidmore and work in the theater off-Broadway. I did indeed have two girlfriends living in New York, and they were in on the scheme and would mail my letters to Philip from New York. I disappeared into that apartment way up on a hill. In order to stay out of the lover's way, I took to sleeping all day and staying awake all night, going to bed at dawn. I became very familiar with eating breakfast at 10 p.m. after my roommates had gone to bed, two eggs and toast for the baby, lunch at 3 a.m., and dinner after the sun came up but before the lovers awoke to go to school. It worked out fine, I thought, and I spent many hours alone in my room reading terrible pulp fiction paperbacks. I succeeded in making friends with a nocturnal mouse, and I got him to come ever closer to me by leaving a trail of crumbs from my toast ever closer to my bed. He was my only diversion. I would make the best of it. Much like rolling over and taking the polio shot in Munich so many years ago. Polly had been totally focused on making sure she would be rid of her pregnancy before her brother's wedding. But what was she going to do with the baby? It wasn't until six months in that she finally saw an obstetrician who told Platt that he knew a couple that were looking to adopt. To Polly, this seemed like the only way to get back on track with her life. I was very ambitious and wanted to have a career, and I knew that I would earn no money for some time and would have no means to support the child, probably for my entire lifetime if I continued in the theater. My mother had given up a very vivid career to marry my father, and I suspected she regretted it, and that her decision had ruined her life. Adoption seemed to be a way of providing for the baby. As insane as it seems, Polly almost got away with it, dropping out of school, lying to the family she feared and the young man she loved, living by night with a mouse as her only friend. But then... Right before she gave birth, Philip somehow found out she had not left him to work in New York, but was in fact pregnant with his baby. He came to see her, but he had found another girlfriend by that point. Polly understood. She hadn't wanted to lose him, but she had done the only thing she felt she could do. Polly gave birth to a healthy baby girl, handed it over to the adoptive parents, and made it home for her brother's wedding. She described the scene waiting for her at home as worse hell than giving birth. My mother was totally mad. She had taken to her bed upstairs permanently now. When I went into my mother's bureau to see if she had stockings and bras and whatever else she might need for the wedding, there was a distinct clink when I pulled. The drawer was filled with empty vodka bottles. 
She didn't want the neighbors to see how much liquor she was drinking, so she didn't put the bottles in the trash. My mother had seen psychiatrists, but of course, I'm sure she didn't tell them how much she drank. The psychiatrist must have told her to keep a diary because I found her sad little book, in which was written the daily tasks of a housewife, ironing the organdy curtains, vacuuming, but even these entries were sparse. Polly felt numb. She knew, rationally, that her mother was very sick, her father was an alcoholic, and that she had just given birth to a baby in an absurdly manufactured secrecy and then given that baby up to strangers to raise. And yet, she couldn't feel any of it. But the things we repress always find a way to come up to the surface. And for Polly, it happened on a harrowing trip to take her mother shopping for a dress to wear to the wedding. As I was hurrying my mother back to the family car, I looked down to see that my breasts were leaking milk onto my dress. For the baby, I thought. I stopped at a water fountain and splashed water on the front of the dress, obscuring the telltale stains from my mother. I couldn't figure out how this could have happened to me. It was at least ten days since I had the baby, and nothing had happened before that. It was just freak leakage. My body was screaming stress, and my mind denied it. I drove toward home, hoping my mother would just calm down. But she grabbed the wheel and tried to drive the car off the road. I was stronger than her and succeeded in not killing us both. It was a nightmare. But at least she was going to be dressed for the wedding. After Jack's wedding, Polly returned to Pittsburgh, hoping to find work and reunite with Philip Klein. Philip, it turned out, had broken up with the other girl and was happy to have Polly back. The couple decided to move to California, where they had some friends from school who wanted to make movies. Before Polly and Philip left the East Coast, a family friend of the Platts had suggested that it would be easier for the couple to live together if they were married. After all, it was still the 50s, and so they tied the knot. The pair moved into a bungalow in Glendale, and Polly found a job sewing robes and vests for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. They didn't last long in Los Angeles before Polly and Philip were invited to come to Tucson, where some friends were planning to start a repertory theater. Polly would be in charge of the costumes and sets, and she assumed Philip would help with construction. But instead, he stayed home to write. The upshot was that while Polly was tirelessly working towards launching this theater, she and her new husband barely saw one another and started to drift apart. When Philip was about to turn 21 in December 1959, Polly planned a surprise party for him. But it didn't turn out as she'd hoped. He foiled my plans by announcing that he and some of the guys were going to go to Nogales, Mexico, a couple of hours' drive away. I argued with him, trying to keep the party a secret. One of the reasons I gave to him for not going was how dangerous the road between Tucson and Nogales was. I said he might get killed on the drive. He laughed and said, You come with me then and we can die together. Philip left in a friend's yellow Triumph sports car and Polly expected him to come back to the apartment late that night to find the party in full swing. But he did not. Finally, it was after midnight, and Philip had not shown up, and I was furious with him. The party broke up at around 1 a.m., and I went to bed, cursing Philip. About 6 a.m., there was a loud knock on the door, and it was the state police... They told me there had been an accident with the Triumph and that Philip had been killed. I didn't cry. I beat my head on the refrigerator, kept saying, This is never going to be all right. Never. I was in shock and very confused. I'd been so angry with Philip the night before, and now he was dead. His life was over, and he had barely had time to live. I was devastated. 
now a widow at age 20, traumatized and alone, Polly went to Massachusetts to visit her parents. Vivian's condition had worsened, and she would soon be institutionalized and given shock treatments. But now, she chased her daughter around the house with a knife in her hand. I told her to go ahead and kill me. I had no fear of her or of dying. I wanted to die. It would be easier, I thought. In this mindset, Polly returned to Tucson, where, soon enough, the repertory theater failed and closed. She was awarded a small insurance settlement as Philip's widow and spent it on a new car and a gun. She had an affair with an Apache man named Mana, but mostly she wanted to remain numb. She decided, I would live my life differently now. I would never love anyone again. I lived this strange life, going out late at night to jazz bars where I drank martinis, my new drink. I had a new friend, Diane, who was black. I met her at the jazz club, and we just liked each other right away. I had my little white convertible, and we whipped around in it going places and shivering with delight, laughing at the sight we made, the stir we caused. She was really beautiful, and I was pretty. We joked about being chocolate and vanilla. I was definitely drinking a lot. Months went by, and Polly had two encounters with movies— that changed the course of her life. First, she heard that a Western was being shot right outside Tucson, and she drove out to watch. It turned out to be a Sam Peckinpah film called The Deadly Companions, starring Maureen O'Hara. It was a low-budget feature, and no one prevented Polly from standing around for days just watching. It was her first exposure to how movies were really made, and she was fascinated. Then, in the spring of 1961, Polly went by herself to see One-Eyed Jacks, a modern, revisionist Western starring and directed by Marlon Brando. In that theater, Polly had a moment of clarity. I decided to go on with my life as an artist. If they made movies this well in Hollywood, well, I wanted to be part of it. The only way I knew to get into the movies was to work in the theater in New York. I packed my car up with all my Navajo rugs and the few clothes I had, mostly Indian moccasins and Levi's and lots of turquoise jewelry. I never said goodbye to Mana or Diane. Next week, we'll discuss how Polly did indeed use working in the New York theater to break into movies and how she broke her vow to never fall in love again when she met a young film critic and wannabe director named Peter Bogdanovich. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt from Polly's unpublished memoir, It Was Worth It, and other sources. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with... Barbara Boyle, Rachel Abramowitz, Sashi Bogdanovich, Antonia Bogdanovich, Allison Anders, Peggy Steffens, and Jules Fisher. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. 
Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tomika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>